0: Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Good morning. How's everyone doing? I like I got a lot of different answers there. Are you doing well? Okay. <clears throat> Would you please stand with me as we read uh, the Word of God? <laughs> Chapter 2 of 1 John, verses 7 through 14. John says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Amen? Amen. Please be seated. You'll see that there are only two blanks. And what you don't know is that I changed what the blank is yesterday. (laughs) Big thanks to an amazing team that makes that possible. The two blanks are this, and I don't want to hear any pages flipping. We're going to come back to it, don't worry. Christian affection and Christian assurance. Those are the two subjects in these two sections of John, and both of these Two ideas are made possible first by the love of God. How many of you have heard a stranger tell you that God loves you? Anybody? And you've probably told a stranger that that God loves them and you've heard the idea of love carried around our culture in a variety of different ways. It has been cheapened or even perverted. It's been consumerized and commercialized. We use the same word to refer to our spouses and our favorite restaurants. means a lot of different things. Today we're going to think a little bit about what it means for Christians to love each other. That is Christian affections. And for Christians to have assurance of their place in the kingdom of God. And both of those are made possible through God's love. Historically you may remember that John is approaching the end of his life. He's in his 80s or he's in his 90s. And he's been faithfully serving the Lord for many years. He's preached the gospel to these churches that he's writing to now. And these young, dumb theological upstarts begin to become convinced of theological views that are not true. You remember the word Gnosticism? Yes. A reference to the idea that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good and Jesus did not actually have a body. It only seemed like he had a body. And these false teachers, these opponents of John, had begun to confuse the other believers in the church. <clears throat> They probably denied that Jesus had an actual body. They probably began to deny or become suspicious of their own sin. They probably began to deny the idea of sin altogether. And so John is really concerned. He has labored faithfully for years for the sake of the souls of the men and women in these churches. And so he writes this letter in part to combat some of these false views. He begins by... Just kind of reiterating, like, I saw Jesus, right? You say Jesus didn't have a body, but I saw him and I touched him. I gave him a hug. I remember him. I was there in the room with him. I spent years with him. He begins to address perhaps some of the sin or false beliefs that these Gnostics or opponents had. That is, they could not claim to have fellowship with God if they were walking in darkness. That is, if they claimed they had no sin at all, they were making God out to be a liar. And in chapter 2, we read more about what it is Christ has done. He says, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you remember last week, Pastor Mike, preaching through Jesus, our present advocate. Who remembers that? Now we come to like another warning passage, another passage in which John is trying to make clear truths, where he's going to talk about hate and love. So every time... We're going to get together and do a series. Mike and I sit down in one of our offices and we read through the book and we try and divide out the passages, what we're going to preach on each week. And every time when we're done, we think we nailed it, crushed it. And then we start preaching through and we're like, oh, we should have split this up and done two sermons here or combined this and done one sermon where these verses are set up. And this week we have one of those sections where on Wednesday I was like, oh man, this should have been two sermons. Present me is annoyed with how confident past me was. <clears throat> but that's okay because we trust in the Word of God to form our hearts, to change our lives. Look what Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Can we trust that God's Word will form us? <laughs> I'm going, to take a break. I'm going to take a break real quick. Can we trust that God's word will form us? And yes. it'll change us? Yes. It'll transform us? Yes. <clears throat> okay, so the divisions don't really matter. First, Christian affection. Reading verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard Perhaps his favorite theme, the theme of love, John's most famous verse is, For God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way, as you remember from last week. There's a story about John, written by Jerome, who was a theologian a couple hundred years later. And We don't know if this story is true, because it's not in the Bible, but it really does sound like John. The story goes like this. John is at the very end of his life. He's certainly in his 90s or even older. And he's made a life practice of teaching, the younger Christians in the churches that he's ministering to. But he can no longer do it. He just can't stand up and talk for a long period of time. He even can't stand up at this point. So his students build a stretcher and they put him on the stretcher and they carry him around the city and he would walk around and repeat over and over and over again, little children love one another. And that's all he would say. He wouldn't say anything else. And eventually his students said, you've got to stop repeating yourself. You've said this hundreds of times. Why do you just say that? And John would respond this way. Because it is the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. I like John's answer. Because on the one hand, he's saying, God commanded that we do this. So I'm going to unembarrassedly like, tell you that's what he says to do. On top of that, John's probably also saying, I've been around for a while. I've seen this work. <laughs> It's not a vague love or an unspecific love. We'll talk more about that later. It's specifically the love rooted in the work of Christ at the cross, not just a general affection. And John's careful at the beginning. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. John is concerned to convey to his readers that the commandment that he has for them is not new, it's old. That it's something that they've heard before, that he is not an innovator. That everything that they say in the New Testament, all the letters and gospels that the apostles write are connected to the Old Testament, they're not an innovation in that they're making things up. Probably it was the case that early Christians were always slapping heretics down. You imagine men in their 60s Worried about men in their 20s, thinking they had come up with new and very cool ideas. So they're constantly slapping these young dorks back down. They're frustrated with them. We love new. One of the problems is as Christianity was spreading, the idea of new would be appealing. Do you guys like new stuff? (laughs) New experiences? New friends? So we're like, no, not new friends. Maybe you ever like replace the furniture in your living room? Ever done that? Or if you don't have the money to do that, you just rearrange the furniture in your living room it feels like you have a new living room. John's very concerned that people might be confused or even convinced by a new message that will do them harm. Theology is not a discipline for innovation. You remember a couple of weeks ago I said, if you received a letter in the mail and it was clear the mailman had made edits, it would frustrate you appropriately. Look at all the places that John says, I'm not making this up. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him <clears throat> and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In 224, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. 311 for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. John is appropriately suspicious of novelty. He's suspicious of theological innovators. He is very concerned that the message that was given to him is then carried on to a new generation of believers, unchanged and unopposed by false messages that are slight innovations. My cable company is always trying to sell me something new. I just want fast internet. Do you want uh, cable television? No. Do you want a wireless extender? No. Do you want a, a home phone? Do you want a box that records things? Nope. I just want the one thing. I don't want anything else. Just that one thing. When I was in seminary, we were told when you prepare for a sermon, if on Friday you've prepared and you think, I've got something really new for the congregation this weekend, you probably don't have something new. You probably have something wrong. (laughs) Mormons come to my house. I'm so excited. If you want to be excited for Mormons to come to your house, you can talk to Michael afterwards and he will prepare you <laughs> diligently to answer all their questions. They're so nice. And they, they show up and they're dressed nice. They've got little name tags, which I kind of like. <clears throat> and they say, we have something for you. And I'm like, you probably don't. they <laughs> like, no, we do. We have, we have something for you. And I was like, I actually, I think I can prove to you That you don't from the cover of your of your little book, and like, what do you mean? Like, hold up your book, and it's the Book of Mormon. Great, it says another testament of Jesus Christ. I already got the other one. I got the first one. I don't need another one. Nothing new. I guess what I'm what I'm trying to belabor is, uh, I don't think newness is always bad in a huge variety of places in life. And I think we look at scripture with renewed eyes often as we reapply it to our lives as we reapply to the situations we're in. But the commands of God himself are not going to change for us. The basic truths about who God is are not going to change for us. They're going to remain the same. And when anyone comes into our lives or into our sphere of influence or into our neighborhoods and tells us, I've got something new for you, you should tell them, I'm sure you don't. (laughs) I'm sure that you do not have something new. The command that John is likely talking about is the love command. Well, we see it as early as uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We'll go to Deuteronomy first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then in Leviticus, we read, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. These two come together in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is asked, What is the most or the greatest law? Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is essentially saying, Everything else that God tells you to do is rooted in you loving God and you loving others. And John is saying, we have always been teaching this all the way back at the very beginning when God called his people out of Israel. This is not a new commandment, it's an old one. He's drawn a distinction between himself and the false teachers who are saying, I've got something new for you. He's like, I don't have something new for you. And then he says something kind of confusing. At the same time, it is a new commandment (laughs) that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's old and it's new. I've just went really hard against those who are saying they have a new thing for us. And then John in the next verse is like, I've got a new thing for you. not trying to make John look bad. Let me explain. Jesus, when he's in the upper room with his disciples, as he's approaching the end of his life, his earthly ministry, as he's preparing for their continued ministry in his absence as he is doing a pit stop on the way to a humiliating and terrible death on a cross. He says this to his disciples in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is not the substance of the command that has changed. It's not the nature of the command. It is the nuance or the character of the command. There is an expansion of the command. This old command is new in its extent. To whom must you love or for whom must you have love? There are people that are easy to love, is that right? It's usually easy to love your kids. Parents often love their kids so much that they don't discipline their kids. It's easy to love, it's easy for me to love my kids, they look like me. I like myself, they look like me. We like people who share our basic cultural preferences, our political ideas, our hobbies, our professions, People that are like us, that agree with us, that kind of vibe with us well, they are very easy to love. Even people that we're not relationally close to. got this little neighborhood that I live in and the people in this neighborhood, most of them do not speak English. But you know what? If I leave my trash cans down, after the trash truck comes by, they'll pull them back up for me every week if I'm there, if I'm not there. Like there's a sense in which we're in proximity to each other. We've got like our own little group and we can't really talk in the same language very easily, but they're going to take care of me and I'm going to take care of them because we're kind of in it together. But Jesus and his teaching very much expands the line around whom we are called to love. You remember the parable of the good Samaritan? Is that right? <laughs> okay. A lawyer approaches Jesus. I want to show you the framing. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He wants to test Jesus. Cool. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, that is Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. And we know that this is Jesus' summary of the law. Jesus said to him, "You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live." And a very lawyery move. His desire to justify himself said to Jesus, "Who is my neighbor?" So Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. We know this story. There's a Jewish man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's walking a dangerous road, and he falls among robbers who beat him nearly to death and take his stuff and lead him on the side of the road. And a priest who would have been considered very righteous at the time, sees this stranger beaten on the side of the road and passes right by. And then a Levite, maybe not quite as righteous as the priest, but still righteous, sees the man on the side of the road and passes right by. And the story might expect here just a normal Israelite, but that's not what happens. A Samaritan sees this Jewish man on the side of the road who is in nearly every regard different from him. Different religion, at least according to them. Different culture, different political ideas, different con, uh, conceptions of who God is and whose God's people are. These two groups do not like each other. And the Samaritan goes over <clears throat> to the Jewish man on the road, and he helps him. He binds his wounds, he takes him down to an inn, he pays for his stay at the inn. So Jesus tells us a like, powerful story, and then uh, we see how The section concludes, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The Lord said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus is doing two things here. First, he's saying, stop drawing lines around whom you're supposed to be neighborly to. Secondly, he's saying, The best way for you to figure out who you should be a neighbor to is who you would be willing to receive neighborly love from when you're on the side of the road and beaten near to death. Because that number is a lot larger than the people we might naturally have neighborly love towards. It gets even more intense than that, though. Look at Matthew 5. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Jesus is saying, don't just love those that are not immediately close to you, or love those that you kind of dislike, or love those who are different than you. He's saying, love your enemies. Love people who hate you, maybe people who want to do you harm, people who is not naturally easy to love. At the time, in the first century, this was a radical and unprecedented way of viewing the world. People say, you should love your neighbors and you should hate your enemies, and Jesus is saying, no, you love your neighbors and you love your enemies. We might agree the idea of tolerance has gotten a little out of hand in our culture. I think we can say that the basic idea behind it, that we are called to love those who do not love us, who do not agree with us, who may want to do us harm, that idea was not an idea born in our modern culture. It's a holdover from Christianity. That was Jesus' idea. Love those who hate you. I remember I was in... A meeting one time with uh, Pastor Zach. I don't know if I was just like kind of doing a ride-along as he was doing counseling. I don't remember. But I remember there was a couple in the room and they were struggling with some members of their family. And they felt there was no way to move forward. And these members of their family hated them. And, and they like, could, could make no forward motion. And uh, <clears throat> essentially the, these other family members had become enemies to the people in this room. And Zach said... Well, you might not be able to have a conversation with them or work it out, but you can pray for them. They actually can't stop you from praying for them. I think about that all the time. One of the ways to love your enemies is to pray for your enemies. Did you know that? Not the sort of prayer where you're like, Dear God, please do justice against my enemies. (laughs) Like, not an imprecatory psalm. Pray like, Dear God, please make them come to their senses. You have a name probably in your head right now. I'm going to let you think about that name in silence for a few seconds. Here's how you pray for that person. You pray that God would grant them a uh, blessing, that God would favor them, that God would prosper them, and that God would humble you That's how you pray for your enemies. So the love is new in its extent and in its example. Who is our example of love? Jesus is our example of love. Look what Romans 5 says. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The way that we are called to love people is not primarily a matter of affection, how you feel about someone. It is through self-sacrificial action the way that we love each other in in this church is not just a feeling, it's self-sacrificial, costly action. You will have certainly an opportunity this week to love someone else in our church and it will cost you something and that's when you remember, this is how I love my brother or my sister in Christ. There's one kind of final warning here that Paul offers I'm sorry, John offers. He says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He says, The one who walks in the light, who loves his brother, is someone who has no cause for stumbling. And what that means is one of the ways that we love each other is we don't cause each other to sin. We've mutually agreed together to chase after each other's holiness. That each other's holiness should should matter to us. This could be in a variety of ways. Sometimes it could mean that you don't drag someone else down into sin with you. That you're sinning, you feel lonely, so you want a friend to sin with you. Could mean simply addressing sin in other people's lives. You know someone is sinning, and you desire their holiness. You don't desire to be right or hold something over them, but you genuinely desire their holiness. Do you talk about it? I think there are probably churches that say, we desire each other's holiness, and they become bastions of absolute, critical, extreme legalism, and that's not what I mean. I mean, if we have joined the Lord, if we love each other, if we act persistently, as good examples and good influences, that we can together chase after holiness. We can be encouraged. I've been corrected in love before, and I'm thankful for it now. Less so then, but now I am because I realize that person cared about my holiness more than they cared about their reputation. Jesus, or not Jesus, John continues, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I think that um, when I consider the sin of hatred and how that sin is mutually exclusive with truly loving someone, it makes me think that probably hatred is most often born out of pride. I know when I feel bitterness growing in my heart towards someone, It's because in some way, shape, or form they have somehow injured my pride. And then hatred kind of feels justified. You're like, well, they hurt me so my hatred means something. Hatred seems to be one of those sins that feels like it's born out of something that's justified. You just follow me when I say this? We have some sort of high estimation of ourselves or our skills and then when someone pushes against that in some way, it feels justified to us to have bitterness against them. As I've been uh, reflecting this week and, and, and reading, um, I was reminded of this quote from Spurgeon. This guy's like back-to-back zingers for 50 years of preaching. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are far worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> I know that sounds intense, but it's actually a comfort to be reminded that that our own value is not rooted in how good we are. And that when people criticize us, we can take it seriously because our identity is not rooted in our righteousness. The righteousness that we, that we actually act out. So Christian affection. Secondly, turning to a different subject. Christian assurance. Let's read 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. As we've been working through John and we hear a variety of different intense statements, I know from personal conversations with many of you, that it is easy to fall into fear and anxiety and feeling overwhelmed with the worry that maybe you're not saved because you see some of these things and you think, is John talking about me? And whereas I think it is appropriate for Christians to exercise healthy caution and careful introspection and ask, do I, the pattern of my life, grow in obedience to the Lord over time, I don't want us to panic. You know what I mean? I don't want us to spiral out of control. I want you to see these words. He says to them, because I am writing to you little children, because I am writing to you fathers, because, young men. because. He's writing these things to them because they already are those things. Do you see that? His main concern is with those who have opposed basic orthodox teaching, and certainly... The believers in these churches could hear John's words and be reminded. The problem is, sometimes we're reminded of things and we don't hear a reminder, we hear an accusation. If I'm about to go into a meeting and someone says to me, Andrew, at this meeting I want to remind you to be gracious and humble. I'm going to be like, what are you saying to me? Are you saying that I'm not normally gracious or humble. And they're like, no, just reminding you to be gracious and humble. You see, we we receive a reminder, someone gives us a reminder, and we hear an accusation. Anyone identify with that at all? Okay. Paul's offering reminders. He's accusing the false teachers, he's reminding the faithful Christians. These reminders are not accusations against God's people. He wants them, the believers in these churches, to have confidence. In Jesus he actually says it more explicitly a little bit later I write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth and he gives it to them in this sing-song poetic pattern in your Bibles the typesets kind of like weird right is that right this section's not just a straight column it's divided out in space differently probably because it's meant to be a type of repeated poem or song It's like, Jesus loves me. You guys seen Jesus loves me growing up? Anybody? Like, you just think about the words. Jesus loves me. You're like, that's correct. This I know, yes. The Bible tells me so. The word of God tells me. Uh, Little ones to him belong. He, they are weak, but what? A profoundly rich little hymn for children that we sing growing up. And it's easy to remember. That's kind of what this is. And although it is divided into little children, young men, and fathers, Uh, The things he says about each individual group actually apply to all the groups. And for the women here, I feel very confident he's not just talking to the men, he's talking to the women as well. So he gives them a series of assurances. The first is this that they have forgiveness for his name's sake, that they have forgiveness for his name's sake, that in the name of Jesus they are forgiven. If you've called on the name of Jesus, that's true about you. Jesus Christ, the object of our worship. The redeemer of sinners. The rescuer of us from the wrath of God. The agent of creation, the sustainer of creation, the one in whom all things will be made right. It's in his name that you have forgiveness of sins. Do you realize he said it is finished on the cross, but he also said let there be light in the beginning. That's the one in whom you have forgiveness of sins. Who could take that away from you? We know that the good news begins with bad news and that human beings are rebels against God. That we've sinned against him both in our first parents but in our own lives that we stand guilty and God's righteous demands of justice are that those who are guilty are dealt with. that The wrath of God is poured out on those who are guilty. God in his kindness sends his son, God himself, to live a perfect life in our place, to die a humiliating death in our place so that the wrath of God might be poured out on Jesus instead of us and all who call on the name of Jesus might be saved. This is a sure foundation. It's not just some random guy that said he was going to die for you. It's the creator of the world. It cannot be taken away from you. You can't sin your way out of salvation. If Jesus is your Savior, then he will be your Lord, and you can be sure You will make it safe to the end. On Friday, uh, a minister that I admire named Tim Keller passed away. And as I've seen, I feel like hundreds of his quotes on social media, one stuck with me as I was thinking about assurances. He says, if you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his mercy. Hope Chapel, if you've called in the name of Jesus, you can be assured you have forgiveness in his name. No one can take that from you. We also have personal knowledge of God. John says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He says, I write to you children because you know the father. I could stand alongside members of other religions and intellectually make the same claims about God. I could stand alongside a Muslim and say, we believe God exists, we believe that God created the world, we believe that God is good, we believe that God is all-powerful. Do you see what I'm saying? There's going to be a bunch of things I do disagree with, but intellectually I can make similar claims with many members of other religions. Together we can know things about God But you know what I don't think is true about my Muslim or my Mormon or my Hindu brother? Is that they don't actually know God. They know of God. They know about God. They know some things that are true about God. But they do not actually know God. Because Jesus says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, there is no way to the Father except through me. That if you've encountered Jesus, and I hope that you have you've encountered God himself. You do not just know about God or of God. You do not just know intellectual facts about God. You actually know him. (laughs) And he knows you. And that is an immense assurance for you. Lastly, an assurance we have is Victory by God's word. Read 14b. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Just as a reminder of the power of God's word. God's word has always been powerful. Amen? He spoke creation into existence. <clears throat> He commands the demons to flee and they do. He provides his word in the Bible and his word creates his people. One of the things I think about a lot is I, I interact with people who are afraid of the devil. Anyone afraid of the devil? Like, I don't know, should I be, should I not be? Do we need to do a devil series? <laughs> not sure. People think, oh, the devil attacks, what does he do? He sends out his demonic, scary minions, and they scare scare me at night when I wake up at like 3 a.m. I'm like, I don't really think that's the primary way that the devil is attacking people. We read the evil one here, and he is real. He's not just a fairy tale. But John actually does tell us the way that the devil attacks or his primary characteristic. We read, you are of your father, the devil, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now Jesus talks about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The way that you might be attacked by the devil or demonic forces is primarily through lies, deception. You might say, That you've overcome the evil one and that at one point you believed something that was not true about the world. Maybe you believed that you were righteous. Maybe you believed that God didn't exist. Maybe you believed the Bible wasn't true, but through God's word, you came to believe all those things are true and those lies were defeated and Satan was overcome. And that continues to be true in your life the reapplication of this assurance that the strength to overcome the evil one is found in the word of God because the devil lies. You might hear the lie that you have not been good enough, righteous enough to get into the kingdom of God even after confessing faith in Jesus. And you're to be reminded the righteousness that grants you access into heaven is not your own. And if you're trying to get there on your own merits, or you're afraid, and you're anxious, and you're overwhelmed, you should know that's the devil's lie. You're rescued through the work of Jesus. Maybe you think it doesn't matter what you do. That Jesus has died for your sins, and, and you can go on sinning as much as you want because he's picking up the bill. That's also the devil's lie. Because a new heart will lead to a new life. If Jesus is your Savior, He will be your Lord. I want you to see the assurances that, that John is offering These are just some of them, just three in this passage. The Lord has given us so much to be assured of the completion of His work. Can we trust Him? Yes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Pray as we approach the Lord's table, we would come prepared. We thank you for the fellowship we have with you and with each other. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.